and welcome to the only podcast of its kind, the Driving You Crazy podcast, where we talk about transportation of all sorts. I am the traffic anchor for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. I am pedestrian advocate Joseph Peters with a brand new Apple Watch, which tells me all the time that when I am walking outdoors, I am actually working out. Should I believe my watch, Jason? No, you shouldn't. Okay. Because just because you're outside doesn't mean you're working out. Absolutely. I mean, you're just outside. You could be outside smoking. That's true. You could be outside dodging scooters. You could be outside, uh, I don't know, encouraging the homeless to move on. Let's be honest. Every time I'm outside and on the sidewalk, I am dodging scooters. <laughs> you could, I know. And now there's new rules where they're going to allow the scooters in the bike lanes and try to get them off of the sidewalks to keep them out of your face. Good. I've been waiting for this for so long. It seems like common sense. Keep the scooter off the sidewalk. Yes. But, you know. When I was up in uh, Louisville for the Parade of Lights this past weekend uh, with my girls doing the baton twirling. By the way, that is a great little parade of lights. Okay. Great parade of lights um, where you they, they have a main street of, I don't know, maybe six or eight blocks. And this whole big parade of lights goes through. And all the crowd is right there. They actually let the crowd get right up on the parade. I mean, there's maybe... I don't know, between the between the widest fire truck that goes down at the beginning of the parade and the crowd, there's maybe two feet on either side of it. So, I mean, they are right there at it. And, and as I'm walking down, holding, I'm, car- I'm, I'm, I'm right in the between of our, the, the middle of the baton twirlers. There's some, the, the big girls are in front of me and the, the little girls are behind me. Okay. And I'm, and I'm, I'm hauling a wagon, a little red wagon. Red flyer deal uh, with the music on it that the girls are twirling to. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, and so and so I'm over there and I'm waving to the crowd and wearing my Denver Seven jacket like just a total doofus. And then these three kids, these kids maybe ten years old. Hey, that's the guy from TV. Well, there you go. The kids man. did. The kids. The kids are watching. So you think that our business is going away? The kids are still watching, probably because their parents are watching. But I saw the kids. No, man, they're really big traffic fans. Yeah. They watch every morning, specifically for you. My point of saying about Louisville was they have these signs that says "Go slow in my in my town." These uh, those those campaign style signs that you put in your yard, right? Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking maybe you could do the same thing: put those campaign style signs in the front of your building, saying "Don't scoot on my sidewalk." <laughs> As I've said several times on that podcast, I just stick out a shoulder and go ahead, try to get by me on the street. <laughs> Boom! Goes the dynamite. Well, we have a jam-packed show today. We also have a special guest coming up in just a minute. Because, uh, you know, every state has its highest point. Ours in Colorado, it's Mount Albert. The elevation there is 14,440 feet. And every state has a highest road. They don't necessarily uh, coincide with it. So, like, the highest road here in Colorado is the top of Mount Evans. It's the Mount Evans Scenic Byway, and it's at 14,130 feet. So, obviously, there's a difference. Down in Florida, I think it's the same spot. Highest road, highest. I mean, it's right there right. all in the same spot. So, the view is really nice from both of those elevations here in Colorado. I've been to both. I've hiked both of them. Um, and, I, and I've visited many highways around the country, but I've never done anything like this. Done mm. a trip like that where you can see all the highest roads around the country. Well, outdoor photographer and conservationist Tony Bynum, he's going to be here in just a bit to talk about going to these roads and seeing, and he has a list of the top 10 most scenic roads, uh, in the, the highest roads in each state. There we go. It's pretty neat. Should be it, exciting. No, it's going to be a, a, a great little interview. That'll be coming up in just a minute. Uh, but first, there was such a massive pot- pothole in the road in Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania, that the neighbors thought a Christmas tree could fit in it. So that's exactly what they did. What happened was there was there's this 
a neighbor by the pothole that was going through their Christmas decorations, saw they had a, like an extra Christmas tree up in, in the attic, brought it down. It was a plain Christmas tree, put it in the pothole. And then other neighbors came by and then decorated the Christmas tree with a little Santa and some lights. And so they had a Christmas tree in this pothole. Okay. It looked like it was maybe a four-foot Christmas tree, maybe five foot, and it was about a third deep into this pothole. Yeah. That all seems dangerous. The pothole itself seems dangerous. The sand in the middle of the street with a Christmas tree seems even more dangerous. But at least you didn't hit the pothole because you knew the tree was there and you could avoid them both. Yeah, but what do you say when somebody hits Santa? Well, poor Santa. That's what you poor say. Poor kids. You say, poor Santa. No no presents this year. Well, it wasn't a real Santa. Oh, wow. It wasn't even a mall Santa. Uh, but the neighbors had said that this pothole had been getting bigger and bigger all the time, so they wanted to draw some attention to it, and obviously they did. So the city officials have since put a metal slab over the hole. They did remove the tree, and they have repairs scheduled for this week. Oh, good. Finally. Pothole shaming. Exactly. It works, folks. We have talked about that, pothole shaming. Um, And it does work. And so I was thinking about doing that in our parking lot because we have a huge pothole that's developing in our parking lot here, in our employee lot. And I was going to go over to the ARC thrift store and see if I could find one of these little Christmas trees. For a couple of bucks, and then throw it in that hole, and then see what happens. How little does the tree need to be, man? There's a Christmas tree shop right up the road. I'm down to contribute to this cause. Oh, yeah, and they're going out of business. They sure are. So they're selling everything at <laughs> rock-bottom prices. So we have that going for us, right? Um, but anyway, city officials say that the weather wasn't a factor in delaying the fix. It was just that a paving company was backed up with other jobs, and that's why they didn't fix it right away. Weather wasn't a factor in not fixing the pothole. We just didn't do it. We just didn't care enough to fix your road. Most police chases start here in the United States after someone steals a car or does something much, much worse, right? There was a recent police chase up in Canada where the police were chasing a car that ended up with a seizure of $20,000 worth of stolen maple syrup. Yay! Hey, yeah! Listen, man, I'm a proud Vermonter. <laughs> Don't talk about syrup like that. So Canada, right there. That is just so Canada. All right, so the crime happened outside of Calgary when two women and one man, they stole a truck and cargo trailer that was full of maple syrup. Delicious, copper-colored, contraband, maple syrup. Eventually, police used stop sticks to pop the tires. They stopped the stolen truck. As serious as this sounds, the maple syrup theft doesn't actually come close to matching the dollar value or volume of syrup stolen in a maple heist in Quebec in late 2011, when nearly 540,000 gallons of syrup was stolen from the Maple Reserve Warehouse with a street value of $13.5 million. That's a lot of flapjacks. Yes, sir. All those people were convicted and sentenced a few years ago. Here in the United States, we, we have a problem with drugs. They're in Canada. Their drug is apparently maple syrup. No, we have a problem with maple syrup, too. We do? people come from Canada, and they take their syrup to Vermont, and they slap a made-in-Vermont label on it, and they call it American Vermont-made maple syrup, when in reality it's contraband Quebec maple syrup. And that's unacceptable, and I don't think that anybody out there really wants Canadian syrup. They are looking for the good stuff, and that only comes from the great state of Vermont. What about New Hampshire? New Hampshire syrup's okay. <laughs> it's just okay. It's, it's okay. not great. It's not Vermont. It's like Wisconsin cheese. Exactly. It's not the same as exactly. Iowa cheese. Iowa cheese is nowhere close to Wisconsin cheese. Ask a Wisconsinite, and they will tell you. Vermont cheese is really, really bad, not too, right. by the way. 
Uh, as we said earlier, every state has its own highest point and its own highest road. Here in Colorado, the highest point is Mount Albert at 14,040 feet. And the highest road is Mount Evans at 14,130 feet. In fact, the road to the top of Mount Evans is the highest paved road in North America. Now, the view from both spots, it's lovely as I've hiked them both, but only the Mount Evans Scenic Byway has been ranked in the top 10 of roads with the most breathtaking view by outdoor photographer, hunter, and conservationist Tony Bynum. In fact, Tony named Mount Evans Road uh, the second of all the 50 states as the one with the most scenic view. To talk about this list is photographer Tony Bynum. Tony, thanks for making the time to join us here on the Driving Your Crazy podcast. Yeah, well, it's, uh, happy to be here. Thank you for, um, for allowing me to have this conversation. Yeah, definitely, because you're a man who was well-traveled in the backcountry uh, as an avid hunter. It was tough, though, I'll bet for you to, instead of hunt wild game, to hunt for scenic highway views from a car rather than hiking in the open range. Yeah, well, there's no doubt. And Colorado has its share of fantastic vistas, there's no doubt. Um, I'm actually just coming back from Kyrgyzstan, where I was in the mountains there, and the Tianxin, Tianxin Mountains uh, on the border of China and Kyrgyzstan, and so... Um, you know, mountains are part of my lifestyle, and, and the, the mountains of Colorado, again, are just fantastic. Um, you know, I think Mount Evans, um, for me, um, as maybe opposed to Pikes Peak, which I would never discourage anyone from visiting, but, you know, Mount Evans um, is, is, to me, less of sort of a destination. For me, when I went to Pikes Peak, and I've been there a couple of times, it just felt like I was driving to the end of this road to... Say I'd been to the top of Pikes Peak and to look around. And when I went to Mount Evans, though, it felt like a more a total experience where you're driving the road. There's wildlife to see. There's there's a couple of lakes up there. Um, so for me, it was sort of like if I was going to have this real overall mountain experience in in uh, in Colorado, I would choose uh, Mount Evans just because of its it's it's a more deeper broader experience and i never felt really like i was trying to get to the end of the road whereas on pipes peak it's sort of well known for car races and you know excursions and you almost just want to go to the end of the road and i'm kind of more of a slower guy so i kind of like to pick my way up these trails well and it's it's a lot like when you go up to the top of mount evans i mean there's a small parking lot up there and there's that little observatory for the university but when you go to pikes peak i mean there's a train up there there's a how there's a hut i mean there's like a, a, a it's a gift shop and a little restaurant yeah. up there so it feels like it's a whole different experience that's absolutely right. And again, I would never discourage anybody. I mean, there's there are very few places anywhere in the world where you can go to 14,000 feet on, in a car. So, you know, the whole experience of getting uh, at, to that elevation um, in a car is pretty remarkable in and of itself. And so the views are spectacular. You know, the, the downside to all of it, if there is one, is that it's pretty seasonal. You know, those roads... Uh, we get a lot of snow in the West and in the Rocky Mountains, and so um, that can tend to be a challenge in the wintertime. And, and so whereas opposed to maybe some other high roads in North America, in particular in the lower 48, you've got to plan accordingly. Uh, you've got to go in the summer, late spring, early, early fall for the most part um, so that you're not um, uh, discouraged by the snow. Right, but you know, so a lot of people, at least here in Colorado, will hike those mountains even in the winter time during the snow season because the top of those mountains do offer a 
different scenic view. Uh, I guess some might say it's a more spectacular scenic view in the wintertime than it does even in the summertime. Yeah, and, and I have not been to either of those locations in the wintertime. Um, I have been, like I said, I, I just came back from Kyrgyzstan, and we were at thirteen, fourteen thousand 14,000 feet on horses and on foot, but uh, hiking at that altitude or elevation, too, is, is a little bit different. I mean, th- th- no matter what, they're great experiences, though. If you can get out and hike around and be out, out in the outdoors at that elevation with those views, I recommend it to anybody who's uh, up for a bit of a challenge. Now, t- Tony, you got to answer me this. How did Alaska beat out Colorado? I've been to Mount Evans. I haven't been to the road mentioned in Alaska, but I can't imagine how anything would top Mount Evans. <laughs> I, you know, that's, it's, it's personal, I think, a personal preference. You know, I, I just feel like having been to Alaska a dozen times and spent time in the backcountry and in Denali and, and up north, I, I feel like um, the remoteness of it, the feeling of sort of being away from, you know, um, I don't know, just civilization itself. And so the views are spectacular and it doesn't stop. You know, I think, I think some of the difference between say Alaska and, and the lower 48 in Colorado is once you're, once you're up that far North, um, the, the height of the road is much less. So if you're at say 5,000 or 6,000 feet in Alaska, um, you're already sort of at this Alpine level. Whereas in the United States, the lower 48, you've got to get much higher to get out of the tree. And so for Alaska, you're just above the tree line. Um, and to me, the, it's just spectacular to see the breadth of the landscape. Um, while it is a little different, obviously, than Colorado, I just feel like being in Alaska is unmatched uh, anywhere that I can recall in the United States. And so it's a separate thing, though. It's almost, they're not really apples and oranges in a sense, but you know, going to Alaska is a whole other adventure, and and so for me, just that remoteness and the feeling of sort of being by yourself is is pretty awesome. I imagine it would be much of the same for uh, when you went to Wyoming, where the Beartooth Highway comes in at number three. That's a pretty remote part up by uh, Yellowstone, and it's almost, I guess, on the state line of Wyoming and and Montana. So that, that's a pretty remote spot too. Yeah, and, and the neat thing about that drive, too, is just, just the drive itself is pretty spectacular, coming out of Montana and heading into Wyoming over Beartooth. Um, you know, again, you can drive to these places that you've seen in pictures that are just so spectacular. And, you know, if you're if you're not a hiker, if you're not somebody who gets out and, you know, wants to really beat the brush, you can't beat that uh, trip either. And there's lots of little hiking that can be done off Beartooth. There's lots of trails off there. There's little lakes and ponds and you know, it, it can get a little busy in the summertime as well. Uh, most of these places are only open in the summertime, and so you do have to deal with some traffic and maybe some people, but um, dress warm. I mean, it doesn't matter on, on any of these roads. You could be there in August and be in a snowstorm. I, I was in, uh, I was in the, uh, the Beartooth country just two years ago in, in, at the end of August, and there was five inches of snow. So you can get caught in snow anytime and make sure and prepare if you're going out. Yeah, I know. I was hiking up a couple of 14ers here in Colorado. This was years and years ago. It was in the middle of July, and here comes a little snowstorm that, <laughs> that blows right through. We're uh, speaking with outdoor photographer Tony Bynum about his list of the top highest roads with the most scenic views. Tony, uh, how many of these roads overall, how many of these roads did you visit before coming up with the top 10? 
Well, I must admit, there is one on the list that I didn't visit, and it is the, uh, the one in Hawaii. Uh, I was given sort of a ranking, a whole bunch of these, and I just chose the ones that I knew I had been to and I had looked at. My preference has always been for the massive, wide, high alpine views of the West. And so you'll notice in the list there, there are a number of, of other locations out east, New Hampshire, Tennessee, you know, West Virginia, Georgia, they all offer remarkable views. But, like, for me, I'm into clean, fresh, cold air. Um, generally, those views out east, are, they tend to be a little bit um, tougher to get when you've got different air quality situations going on. So chances are if you're out west and you go to these higher uh, locations, you're going to get a much better view simply because the air quality is a lot better. Um, there's less atmosphere, uh, there's less dust and that sort of thing in the air to sort of block your views. Yeah, the first eastern U.S. place on the list is the road to the top of Mount Washington there in New Hampshire. It's a it's a place that consistently has some of the most horrible weather in the country. I think they still hold the record for one of the coldest and yep. windiest places on earth. So how was it? How how was it there when when you were there? Yeah, I was there um, a number of years ago, back probably in about two, let's see, 2001, I think it was. Now I was there, and I was skiing around New Hampshire and just checking things out, and, and I'd gone back later just because I wanted to see what it really looked like, and I felt, fortunately for me, maybe the weather wasn't quite so drastic, but I have heard, I, I think I hear more stories about how crazy the weather is on uh, uh, on that particular Mount Washington than any place else, even though I know, you know, being actually from East Glacier Park, Montana, where uh, the wind blows 100 miles an hour every winter, um, you know, I'm still taken back. I kind of wish I would have been able to see the wind in that spot, but I wasn't able to. Um, I still feel like, again, the view there, the, that part of the world, if you like, you know, hardwood trees and big forests, I mean, it's hard to beat that part of the world. Well, and you're talking about my old hometown. I, I grew up about 45 minutes from Mount Washington. I went up the Cog Railway a bunch of times as a child. And it's kind of, um, I wouldn't quite compare it to Pikes Peak in terms of how built out it is. But what you mentioned about Pikes Peak, how at the top you get to the gift shop and all that other stuff, and it feels a little bit more commercialized. I always kind of felt that way about Mount Washington as well, is that they really pegged to that reputation as this windy, monstrous sort of weather location but also a place with beautiful views and turn it into the tourist attraction in that area yeah well let's face it i mean the population's much different right there's a yep. lot of people back there and and if you can't travel to the west or do a big trip um you know i still would recommend somebody trying to go that far that's it's pretty easy to get to you know there's a big population lots of people and so while i encourage everyone to come to colorado and you know travel those roads if you can't make it out, you know, head up there and get cold and wet and maybe get snowed on because that whole experience is fun. I On the list, on the last uh, three on the list at number 8, 9, and 10 are some roads in Tennessee, West Virginia, and Georgia. I see that the road, that the highest point uh, in Florida did not make the list. Um, I've seen that only from Google Earth, and it's pretty much just a bunch of trees and a marker that says this is the highest point in Florida along this road. Are there some of these areas that you wish that you could have seen, but you just haven't yet? Um, I, you know, I'm pretty good actually. I've traveled to all. <clears throat> I've, I've traveled to every state except Hawaii, and um, I, I'm sort of 
feel like I've done what I can to see these places. And I, uh, again, you know, for, for me, I'm a Westerner, so I just, my heart's in the West. And when I go East, I sort of have to change my sort of mentality a little bit and accept the fact that you just aren't going to have the breadth of vistas. I mean, and it's a little bit of a challenge even. Like, for example, in West Virginia uh, and Georgia, you really have to pay attention to views because they're harder to find. And so while you're traveling on these roads, I catch myself always trying to figure out where can I go to see the most uh, expanse and broad view because there's so many trees. So, you know, again, I, I've talked to people from the east who come to Montana, and I, I talked to one lady one time, I was in actually in New York, uh, and she said, well, I'm never going back to Montana again. And I said, well, why is that? And she said, because I felt like I was going to fall over. Uh, <laughs> and and then I was, she was serious about that. And so, again, it's just people's preference. And for me, I just love to sort of be in the wide open space where I can see stuff. Uh, I'm not really into being in the brush and, you know, my family lives in Washington state where there's trees everywhere. And I, you know, North Cascades was on here on this list because, you know, I spent a month um, hiking across the, the North Cascades a number of years ago and just the most, some of the most beautiful places I've ever been is in the North Cascades highway area. That region of Washington state is just spectacular as well. Tony, is there like a job application I can fill out to do what you do? I think all of our listeners, myself included, are listening to this saying to themselves, how do I get that job driving around, hiking all the time, taking beautiful pictures of, of views? I mean, how did you end up in this position? What advice would you give to people who maybe want to follow a similar path? Yeah, um, it's it's a great question. And, and I have to admit, uh, I, I feel like maybe it's the Internet, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's the digital world we live in today, but I feel like more people are getting out nowadays and i'm not sure why that is if it's just this allure about taking photographs or if it's all the the outdoor recreation that you know has been in the news over the last few years and public lands and these kind of things but um i feel like people are finding very unique ways to be outdoors you know i i've always been an outdoors guy and so you know clear back from uh you know i don't know if you guys remember marty stauffer but um he lives in colorado now uh, he still kicks around. He's, he had a fantastic TV show um, called Wild America. And when I was a kid, I used to watch that. And that turned me on to the opportunity maybe of being some professional in the outdoors. And so that just got me sort of looking at what could I do to be outside all the time. And, you know, there are lots of trade-offs. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it sounds fantastic, and, and in some ways it is, but the trade-offs are enormous. You, you don't sleep a lot. You have to travel a whole bunch. You drive. You know, there were years I was putting forty to 50,000 miles on a vehicle. Um, just do the math on how much that costs. Uh, so, you know, the trade-offs are, are, are big, but, you know, you only get one life, you know, and I kind of wanted to see everything I could. And now, I, like I said, I, I just got back from uh, uh, Kyrgyzstan and seeing those mountains and how they compare to the rest of the world. And I've been to South America and Africa and New Zealand and all the mountains, the big mountain ranges I could get to. And, you know, I still come back to the United States and I feel like we've got everything you could ever want. If you never left this continent, um, you know, I don't feel like you'd be missing a whole lot as, as cool as cultures are around the world. Um, North America is just unbeatable in my view. 
We're speaking with outdoor photographer Tony Bynum about his list of the top highest roads with the most scenic views. Tony, for a guy like you, as you just mentioned, you, you mean you're you're well traveled. It's easy for you to get in and out of the backcountry. It's really no big deal at this point in your life. But for many people, even though they are budding photographers, they're they're really not able, maybe even physically, to do the sort of things that you're able to do. I think your list might actually give some of the people, especially people maybe with more health concerns, a chance to see maybe a part of their state that they haven't been able to physically see yet and still see something spectacular. Yeah. You know, and I, I would I would always, I will comment, I think it's important to recognize some of these higher elevations. Uh, you know, be prepared. There, This is uh, just, just the physicality, even of being in a vehicle going to 14,000 feet, is very challenging on your body. Um, so uh, again, I, I, I would caution people when if you go that high, you just have to be prepared to, to deal with a little bit less oxygen. But as far as, you know, anything under six, five, six thousand, you're pretty okay. And like, you know, take it on as a challenge, set the destination and drive there, take your kids. I mean, that, to me, if you can take a, a child out to some of these places, it, it does have a, a way of sort of changing their view of the world. And so, um, I encourage people to take their children or a friend, some, somewhere, you know, where you can see a lot of this country and actually, you know, experience um, some wild areas still, even in these, even in these denser populated states. I mean, these places are still, it still feels like you're out in the bush, even though you're in a state that has 10 million people. I mean, it, it's fantastic. It is fantastic. I took my uncle up to the top of Mount Evans one time, uh, and he, he's not very good with heights. Uh, so he wasn't very good with the road because, you know, there are some areas of that road that are, are pretty steep. Um, and so he, he had a little bit of a trouble with that. But then he gets up there and he, and he can't believe it. I, I was going to take him on that road between Central City and Idaho Springs called Oh My God Road. But just the name of it freaked him out too much. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could throw you could throw Glacier National Park into that. I mean, that the going to the Sun Road, you know, and I, I didn't put that on the list just um, I felt like I, it would have been too partial for me. I live in Montana, that's where I'm from, and I, I just feel like, you know, it, it is a beautiful place, but it's the same kind of thing, you know. You really sort of, the pucker factor goes way up when you're on those kind of roads. <laughs> you're not kidding. Tony, we thank you so for your time. Where can people find your photographs if they're interested in seeing all the uh, great things that you've seen? Well, I do have a website. It's TonyBynum.com. But, you know, Google is so good nowadays that you if you typed in just my name, Tony Bynum, uh, in a Google search and went to images, you'd see just a, probably a big cross-section of everything I do from, you know, hunting to individuals to people to environment. To I do a lot of photojournalism as well. And I tend to really gravitate towards stories about the outdoors and, and you know, people doing things outside. Um, I, I wouldn't say I'm sort of this ultra uh, adventure kind of photographer guy. You're not going to see a lot of the, you know, some of the crazy stuff people do today. And, and it, it, it's just amazing, though. I mean, people with cameras today are doing things that 10, 15, 20 years ago, nobody was seeing. I mean, that's what's awesome about it, too, is that it's just incredible the skills people have, the, the, the length they're willing to go to get fantastic images. But get online and, and type in some stuff in Google, and, man, you can really find some pretty incredible stuff. But that also makes some people do stupid things like taking selfies <laughs> on the top of waterfalls and then falling off. YOLO. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, in fact, I think there was some 
some guys from uh, Canada just uh, – the guys in – they went to Yellowstone a few years ago and got in trouble for walking in the, the hot springs ponds and such there, and I think they were doing some wing walking on an airplane and actually died. So you got to be a little smarter about some of those things. You know, I don't <laughs> I don't recommend wing walking. <laughs> I don't uh, either. <laughs> yeah, great. All right, Tony. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining us here on the Driving Your Crazy podcast. You bet. Thanks, guys. I'm telling you, that was great. I could talk to him all day. Well, I've seen people map out routes. It, it, nothing like, like what he did, but I, I've seen people map out routes that will take it to all the 50 states or to, let's say, roadside attractions in all the 50 states. I, I think I would do that trip is to see all the different roadside attractions. But visiting all the highest roads in each state, I think that would be a pretty cool trip, too. Oh, absolutely. It'll uh, test your stomach, though. I mean, there are plenty of people who do not want to be that high up on a road at any point. No, uh, but I think I'll put that on the bucket list. There we go. I'll write it down on the bucket list. Um, I could check off Colorado. I've been to the highest road here. I've been to other, you know, states. I've been to, I guess I've been to about, I don't know, 38, 39 states, something like that. But I haven't been to the highest places in all those states. I would challenge you to turn this into a road trip with your oldest daughter. When she turns 16, she gets to drive all of the highest roads (laughs) in America. And you have to sit in the passenger seat and watch, and you're not allowed to say anything. That might be a good idea. I might like that. Okay. That might be interesting. Well, in a move, Joseph, that we have predicted right here on the show... Delta Airlines will ban all emotional support animals on flights longer than eight hours and will ban all service animals and support animals under four months of age on flights no matter the duration. It is coming to a head. Service animals, whether they be a dog, a cat, the armadillo, the camel, the rabbit, the squirrel, the whatever, uh, it's coming to an end. I'm glad it took us this long to figure out that puppies are not service animals. You cannot teach a dog to be a seeing eye dog in four months. Well, I think that's what happened with that Delta flight. Right. We covered it, what, last week or the week before, where he, uh, well, dropped the deuce on the floor, and then that guy lost his mind after he stepped in it and had to sit there on the flight. Now, the policy will go into effect next week, just in time for Christmas travel, And Delta says it amended its animal policy after finding an 84% increase in reported incidents involving service and support animals over the last couple of years, including urination, defecation, biting, and other obvious animal problems. Now, the full policy and the additional information on types of accepted animals and other questions related to traveling with service and support animals is all available right now on Delta's website. This is just the first All the other airlines are going to be following with other similar news releases. We're going to see those very soon. It's actually interesting. As fate has it, I'm going to be taking a Delta flight uh, here in January from Miami back here to Denver. Uh, My wife and I had actually a very short discussion, like maybe 60 seconds, about Senorita Whiskers. Mm. She's our kitty cat. We bantered around the idea that we could actually bring the cat with us on the plane, stay have her stay with us in a hotel we're going to stay in a hotel in miami for a couple of days before getting on a cruise boat so we could stay have her stay with in the hotel find a boarding place there in miami board the cat in miami and then when we get off the ship pick up the cat and then bring it back with us on the airplane uh we have to connect though through atlanta we have to go from miami to atlanta and then back to denver we have about a three and a half. Well, the, the, look, the conversation didn't last that long. Were you going to pretend it was a support animal? I don't. Yes. 
We were going to get the paperwork to make it a support animal. That or a seeing eye cat. That's a terrible idea. It was a great idea. It was not a great idea. But it only lasted about 60 seconds. And because, look, we we decided Senorita Whiskers, it gets a little bit freaked out when uh, she sees the garage door open. She's really only an inside cat. And so it's really not a good idea for her to be out and about. Well, what's most comical about that whole discussion is you were still going to board her. No, we're still going to board her now. I mean, we're going to yeah. ha- we're going to we're going to take her and But the plan involved boarding her just not in Colorado. We're going to right. do it in Miami instead. Come now. Yes. No. So she'll stay at the house a couple of days and then my my in-laws will take her to the boarding place cuz I don't think they can take care of her every day okay. at the house as as they're watching over it and and then we'll come and then we'll go and come pick it up. But I was also thinking uh, about this whole trip because we're taking a direct flight down there from here to Miami. I I did two different one ways because the because the prices were, were so much better as one ways than they were as round trips. That happens, yep. So on the way back, I and this is stupid me, I booked this this one way coming back and I actually found a cheaper flight by about hundred and fifty bucks uh like a month and a half later. So but you you never can predict. I mean that, that's right? just roulette, man. You can't really So we're flying through Atlanta and there's a three and a half or so hour layover between our flights when we land in Atlanta and we and we come back here to Denver. So I'm thinking, and I, I, I think I can get my wife in, in on this one, leave the airport. So we get, get right off the plane, go right to the MARTA, which is their rail system, their, their, their commuter system, train. Get on the MARTA, go down to uh, downtown, over there to uh, the, I think it's the north side station. Anyway, get off there, get to the Varsity, get some glorified burgers, onion rings, frosted orange, uh, have some lunch. Get back on the train, back to the airport, check in, and off we go. It's a bold move, Cotton. That is <laughs> that is uh, that is risky business right there. <laughs> it is on a three and a half hour layover. Yes. Now, now I now I in all honesty, I have done this in the past when it was just me and my wife and my in laws. I think my sister in law was there with us, or I can't remember. Anyway, the four of us. I think we had a four hour layover or something like that in Atlanta as we were going down to Savannah. We. Got off the tr- plane, got on the train down there to the varsity, had our varsity food, and then we got back to the airplane. There was no problem. But this time, it's just me and my wife and the two, my two girls. And so... it's a lot of I variables. Yeah. A lot of things that can go wrong. And they will be carrying their little backpacks, their little traveling uh, suitcases that are on wheels. So that's going to be an, a, a problem. I'll have my little backpack that I have uh, our electronic accoutrements in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gina just travels with her purse. So it's not like we're going to be traveling with a lot of stuff. But it might still be an issue. I, I have a feeling, though, even though I want to do this, and maybe I would just go alone, <laughs> uh, that, that the, whole, <laughs> the whole thing is going to be called off. That's a bold move, going by yourself. What do you think? That's Should I try a, it by a, myself? That's and then a power move. Go it's for like, it. go, go out there, get it. Because I can go faster than they can. Yeah. I can travel alone faster than they So I could get there, get a to-go order, and then bring it back. Now, the frosted oranges would well, melt by the time I get back, but but the onion rings would still be probably pretty good, and glorified burger would be great. They don't deliver to the airport? No. 
That's too bad. They might. You know what? Actually, I should check and see if the Varsity actually has a like a like a satellite restaurant in the Atlanta airport. That's that would saying. solve my problem. There's a Chick Fil A at that airport too, right? Well, uh, we might end up there. Elevated airport dining is one of the up and coming categories in this country. I'm just saying, man. There's got to be somewhere at the Atlanta airport worth checking out. There, there might be. Now at the Miami airport, they have one of those uh, American Express concierge lounges. Really, really nice. Mm-hmm. However, it's on the way other side of the airport. It's a long walk down there. Long walk. And uh, it's fine, but it's just a long way away yep. from where we want to be at the Delta uh, uh, concourse. So we'll see. I don't know. We'll see how that goes. Have you ever seen someone, by the way, speaking of airports, whizzing past you in a wheelchair at the airport security area? I have. I've seen this. You have not seen this? You like, probably you mean just, just beating notice. me in line, right? Not oh, yeah. Like, no, not they not just, like a foot race. No, but, as you are winding yes. through the turnstiles back and forth and back and forth for, for a half an hour, here comes somebody in a wheelchair, whether it's there or at Disney World, uh, off they go to the front of the line, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I've always assumed that they are fully disabled, and they actually deserve, they, sh- they, they need the wheelchair to get around. Maybe they just can't walk or whatever the case may be. Well, sometimes... You, can, uh, you can't see disabilities on the outside, but what I learned is that there's a chance that those wheelchair people are actually perfectly okay, and they just needed an excuse to get through security a little bit faster than you. Some people you can't see. You can't see the inside hurt. Right, right, right. You right. can't see it. Mm-hmm. And so then you're in the wheelchair. It's not like you have, uh, you know, you can see that somebody's 97 years old and they just can't walk through an airport. The only time they ever let me cut to the front of the line was when I left my passport and my license at home. And I had to use several forms of alternate ID to get onto the plane. And for some reason, they thought that that made me special. And thus, I was entitled to cut ahead of people. That's why, as I'm showing you now on my phone here, I have a picture of not only my uh, driver's license, but also I have a picture of my passport right here on my phone. So I have a special folder, and actually what it is, it's a folder that, see, look, right here. Here's my passport right there. See? Oh, yeah. and see? See? You look a lot younger in that picture. Yeah, a little bit. And there's my daughter, there's Jaylin. Okay. And there's Jolene. And there's so. And what I do is actually have this program that's a business card program. You're supposed to take pictures of business cards, and then it puts the information there. So it's not just like, hey, look, I'm, I'm looking at pictures on this guy's phone. Oh, look, here's a picture of his driver's license. Uh, so you have to hit the app, and then you can get into it. That sounds like identity fraud waiting to happen. Probably. Well, anyway, passengers in wheelchairs also get a personal escort, and their service is completely free. Okay. Now, these fakers in wheelchairs and people with real disabilities are typically called upon to board a plane first, and in many cases, they're able to skip the security line or, at the very least, roll through customs and security more easily and much faster than you who are standing up waiting in a very long line. Uh, We're just suckers. Pretty much. Yeah. Now, there are some people who do this, but then when they are seen walking as if they're perfectly normal, they claim that their disability or injury is invisible. It's on the inside. And it's so difficult to distinguish between the most genuine wheelchair users and the fakers. There are fakers. I wouldn't say it's a majority of people who are fakers, but there are fakers out there. And the experts say that people who do fake disabilities probably don't take advantage of the system all that often, but they do take advantage of it sometimes. 
And some genuine wheelchair users may be able to walk short distances, but just not be able to, let's say, walk a long way or stand in a long line for a prolonged period of time. So passengers, they don't have to show any proof of disability or injury. I could just walk up and say, look, I, I need a wheelchair. Bring it to me now. Go. Okay. <laughs> now, according to the U.S. Department of Transportation, you don't need to show proof. They just have to self-identify as a passenger with a disability, and the airlines are then required to provide assistance, including helping them get from the terminal to the gate and onto the plane and in your seat. The 1986 Air Carriers Access Act requires airlines to provide free wheelchair service to any traveler who asks for it without requiring a description or documentation for that need. Right there. That's the deal. So if you fake it or you don't fake it, you get a free wheelchair because of, thank you, this act. Okay. Now, most airlines ask that you make a wheelchair or cart request at least 48 hours in advance. Now, if your airport has those sky caps at the curb, you can request a wheelchair from them to get you through security and to your gate much faster than the average Joe. Now, after checking in, you can make arrangements with a gate agent to have the wheelchair or cart, one of those uh, little golf carts that roll around the airports beeping at you to get out of the way, available at your transfer point or final destination. And airlines also have special wheelchairs to help people board on the aircraft if you so are re uh, in need. So if you have wondered about these uh, airport golf carts, as I have. And I have. Because I like them. They're awesome. That take people from here to there, honking at you as you're as you're driving. It's really I'm just trying to go on my way, and all of a sudden, and they just so they don't do it like politely. They don't do a polite honk. Well, it's not like they're stopping for people and being like, "Hey, are you in a rush to get to your gate? Can I help you with that?" No, it's just constantly asking people to get out the way. Get out the way. Well, those are usually a service of each individual airline, and many are doing away with them. The Skycaps can arrange that for you as well. At the gate, and the ticketing agents can help you out at the time you might need it. Now, if you do get on one, they won't move passengers between concourses. You have to get off and transfer to another cart if you need to move between concourses, mm -hmm. just on the concourse. Normally, you can't reserve a cart service the way you can a wheelchair, so you need more time between the flights for the gate agent to get the cart driver over there, pick you up, and then move you on to your next gate. And then it will pause, apparently, to stop and unload other passengers. So I guess you're on a like an Uber pool. So if there's other passengers along the way that need to get picked up, they could pick them up. Uh -huh. Now, I've heard that American Airlines offers a five-star service at some airports that includes airport lounge access, assistance connecting to other airlines, and an escort to baggage claim. But you must make a reservation about 24 hours in advance, and it costs about 350 bones. Is liquor included? I don't think so, but maybe they could stop at the duty-free shop. Well, I'm not walking, so I think they should at least <laughs> throw in a couple drinks. You would think so, <laughs> just like you're in the first class on the airplane. Exactly. Yeah, and see, on Delta, they have a first-class section. I will not be sitting in it. Um, I will see those people in that first-class section, enjoying their drinks as they got on first, um, and then... And sincerely, I hope you're happy. With your drinks and your first class That's exactly service. what I'm going to say as I'm walking by. Should I, like, do one of the, Here's class rocks! You could. You could ask them where their blood money came from to pay for the seat. What I if like I just idea. swipe one of their drinks as I'm walking by? 
No? Is that that's a bold move too? Pet, petty crime's a bad look, I think, because <laughs> that gets you kicked off an airplane, doesn't and, it? And besides, why would you steal it from the people, man? Just steal it from the beverage cart. They're never going to notice. Oh, you're right. The person whose booze was just served to them, they will probably notice. They probably but if you will. just take a handful of little scotch bottles. Sure, why not? Hell, handful, huh? Yep. Yep. There we go. The sticky bandits. The sticky. <laughs> we already have lined up a couple of cool interviews for next week. Somebody who's really upset about honking. A lot of honking going around Denver, and uh, he, he wants to straighten us all out on the honk. Um, so we'll talk to him next week. And we also have a, a, a lady who had her bike stolen, and we talked to her here on Denver 7, did a news story about it, but she also happens to be an urban planner. So it'll be interesting to hear from her. Never met anybody who loves bikes as much as this woman. Ne- never. So it should be an interesting interview. Yeah, and so she's a student doing urban planning, so we'll see what's being taught in the urban planning school and what the future of our cities for bikes and, and their drivers and all that is going on because they are the people right now that will be making the decisions in the next 10, 15, 20 years of what our cities will look like coming up in the future. So that is going to be all next week. This was a fantastic show. Amen. I'm telling you, Tony was was awesome. That was one of the best interviews we've had. Amen. Thanks again for being here. Uh, as part of the podcast, don't forget to rate, review, and return. Um, wait, that's not right. Rate, review, repeat. There you go. Rate, review, repeat. We need more rates and reviews and repeats on iTunes. Yes, we We're do. out on other places, but uh, make sure you do it on the iTunes because then we get seen more on the old iTunes. So thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jason Luba, the Traffic Guy. I'm Maple Syrup Truther, Joseph Peters. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.